Welcome to Crop Sense, presented by North Carolina Cooperative Extension. I'm Jacob Morgan, a field crops agent with North Carolina Cooperative Extension. Today, we have Dr. Charlie Cahoon and Dr. Wesley Everman, weed specialists with NC State University. Welcome back, fellas. Hey, Jacob. Good to be back. Thanks for having us on again. Yes, sir. Today, we're going to discuss aux and herbicides, specifically dicamba use in cotton and soybeans. So maybe a good place to start is a little background slash history on how exactly aux and herbicides were first allowed to be used in cotton and soybeans. Yeah, sure. Um, they were originally released on, as far as the soybean in uh, around 2015, and then we had 2016 was the first year with the herbicide applications in the country, let's say legal over the top applications. Unfortunately, there were some cases where folks were spraying and they shouldn't, but we were able to start making these applications in 2016 and uh, have continued since then uh, with a few little hiccups, a little bumps along the way, some issues in a few states and regions, and then a few in our own area as well. But they were developed, you know, a number of years ago, actually about uh, a little over 10 years ago, I believe, they started developing them and kind of brought them along and brought along the herbicide technology with it and tried to make a safer dicamba system than just the original Banville and Clarities that are out there, cause more volatility and have more concern for off-target movement. So kind of brought the, those two technologies together, the seed and the new formulations, brought them to the market and gave us a different mode of action and technology to use in soybeans than we traditionally have had. Were there any application cutoff dates with the original registrations? So with those original registrations on the federal labels, there were no uh, application cutoff dates. Some states put in their own, but as far as that, that federal label, there were none, and, and we had none here in North Carolina. So that brings us to the Ninth Circuit of Appeals ruling last summer. And can you kind of give a little bit of background on the lawsuit that culminated with that Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that basically cut off DICAMBA applications? Yeah, sure. So so that uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals um, is out in California. And that was actually a lawsuit that was filed in 2016 or 2017 around very close to the initial launch of the technology. And even though that ruling came in 2020, it, you know, it had been working its way through the court system for, for several years. And we just kind of bared the fruit of that lawsuit in 2020 when the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals judge ruled that the, the, the labels were invalid. Um, so those federal labels were vacated. So any of that product you had basically became a, an illegal application after that decision. Um, however, EPA and, and our State Department of Ag worked hard to be able to give folks the opportunity to, to use up what they had on farm, which is typical with any time that you see a, a pesticide registration removed from the market, stocks are, are able to be used, and that was kind of in line with what had been done in the past. Um, so we had until, I believe, July 31 of, of 2020 to use any product up that was on farm, and those labels for Ingenia, Fexapan, Extendamax, they were going to run up and Tavium as well. They were going to 
run up at the end of 2020 and December of 2020 anyway. And, you know, really the only ones that were affected were Ingenia, Extendamax, and Fexapan because they were the only ones labeled at the time that lawsuit was initiated. Uh, so those label registrations were running up in December of 2020. So we knew we had to have a new label moving forward because we had been working under these conditional registrations that had been, you know, just a couple of years in time. Um, and so that's what we got in 2021 is the uh, a new five-year registration. And that's where these new restrictions come into play with the, the cutoff dates and some other little things that have changed moving forward. So the, the re-registration for five years on the federal level, I guess part of that was based on some of the issues they've had in other parts of the country. But from my experience, we haven't really had near the problems using both Dicamba and 24D technologies in North Carolina. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. From the get-go, prior to Charlie coming on board, you know, Dr. York and I had talked about ways to handle this. It was a big concern, right? We had meetings with commodity groups, uh, tobacco growers, sweet potato growers, all the veggie groups. We had, we had several large meetings around the state with stakeholders, and we talked about different ways we could avoid issues and what we could do in this state to try to best shepherd this technology into our system. Because not only did our soybean and cotton growers need it for managing, especially Palmer amaranth, but we had a unique concern about all our specialty high value crops and needing to bring this technology in without widespread issues. And uh, we didn't have room for a steep learning curve and a lot of error. So from the get-go, we did trainings, um, we did a lot of outreach, a lot of discussion about how to use these, when to apply them, where to apply them, and then nozzles, equipment, tank mixes, everything involved on how to best apply these auxins. And it was with great success. I mean, we didn't have a lot of the big issues that we're seeing around the rest of the country. I think that's in big part to the trainings that we did. Charlie, correct me if I'm wrong, the numbers on our official complaints uh, in that first year, I think was 13 official complaints where we're looking nationwide. There were you know, dozens and sometimes hundreds of complaints in, in other parts of the country. So we were looking at 13 that first year, six, six. And then last year, we didn't even have any official complaints in the state as far as oxen off-target movement related to dicamba. So we felt like we'd been doing a good job trying to identify the, the issues and make sure we're making on-target safe applications where possible. Yeah, and just to build on what Wes talked about, the success in the state, you know, each year at this auction training, we're, you know, we're training 2,500 to 3,000 applicators a year uh, and we, we survey them and we get pretty good response rates from these surveys. And we're asking them to, to self-report their problems. And exactly what Wes said, as the, you know, the cases, official cases to NCDA have declined, even grower reported or even self-inflicted cases that we are seeing in the survey have been reduced. And we're also seeing the same trend with number of injured acres of soybeans, tobacco, et cetera. So everything is pointing toward we've been using these herbicides more. We've been planting more acres of the crop and using the, the herbicide a little more. But 
the number of problems have been going down and all the evidence points to that. And I'll add in, I, I'll let you talk to the cotton, Charlie, but on soybeans, one of the reasons we've adopted the dicamba technology so readily compared to some of the other technologies that are out there is adapted varieties. Uh, the beans that our growers have been most successful with are often the same companies and families of soybeans you know, where the dicamba trait has been introduced. So it's been a very smooth transition into some of the highest yielding varieties. And many farmers are even growing dicamba beans and not using dicamba because they do have some of the highest yielding traits and are, are the most adapted. Not to say there aren't some on the way or, or probably gonna be an increase with some of the other technologies, but that is what has led to widespread adoption in many areas. It's a similar trend in cotton. Um, you know, a lot of the, the variety choices are driven by, by yield. And uh, if, if the trait was in varieties that didn't yield well, then wouldn't get those acres. Now, I would say that adoption was really quick in cotton, but it's kind of been steady because, you know, uh, we, we've, you know, got the 2,4-D system and, and phytogen in cotton. And so that's, you know, been had a, a large chunk of the acreage and, you know, Stoneville in FiberMax with, without uh, either Dicamba or 2,4-D initially had some, a, a chunk of the acres as well. So it's kind of you know, when you look at the numbers from our survey, the usage in cotton has kind of been flat almost immediately from start. It's been relatively high. You know, about 50% of our acres were getting dicamba in, in cotton, but it's kind of been flat. But I would say, you know, it's a lot of it's been driven by, by yield potential and variety as well. I think one thing that needs to be noted about all the success that we've had in North Carolina using these systems is that in other parts of the country, they don't have all the high value crops we have and they don't have the small fields that we have and they don't have all the high value crops interspersed amongst cotton and soybean fields, which we do. And I think the fact that we had so little complaints and so little issues just speaks to all the training that, that was done and the growers' attention to detail and wanting to do things right. And one thing I think we may need to circle back on is obviously there's a lot of training going into these aux and herbicides and using them, which hasn't happened with Roundup and some of the other herbicides. So why, what was the big deal or why is it such an issue with the Dicamba 2,4-D to kind of take so much more care and attention to detail when applying these around these high value crops? Biggest reason is just that low dose needed to cause a physiological response in many of these high value crops, whether it's dicamba or 2,4-D auxins in general, you know, they mimic a growth regulator, right? And so that gives a growth regulator response or a growth response in these crops. And it doesn't take much. I mean, we're talking parts per million, sometimes parts per billion to get a response on some of these very sensitive high value crops. And it's quite different than what we've seen with a lot of our other herbicides. You mentioned glyphosate. That's a, a good example. So you might need parts per hundred to see some sort of response as opposed to parts per billion. And so that is important. And then marketability and residues were also a big concern for these groups because they're going in food crop, they're going into the food system. You don't have that 
ability to say, well, okay, it was a little bit of drift. It impacted my yield a little bit. If there was any symptoms in these crops or still to this day, if there are any symptoms, buyers will often reject that whole field. They'll say something's been applied to this field. It's an illegal residue. Don't want to deal with the issues and potential uh, regulatory concerns and downstream effects. So they will keep that out of the system, rightly so. And, and that's for consumer confidence and consumer safety. So we knew that these were concerns that needed to be addressed on the front end and not just, well, it's a little bit of drift. It'll be fine. It's not going to affect yield that much or we'll just account for the little bit affected yield wise. You can't do that with some of these high value commodities and, and cash crops. Yeah, and Jake, I would think you hit the nail on the head, you know, our crop diversity. We, it, we knew it was going to be a challenge. You know, our growers recognize the value of tobacco. They recognize the value of sweet potatoes, and wine grapes, and vegetables because they've been growing cotton and soybeans next to them for, for many years. And so I think uh, that that's also come into play with just that awareness of I don't want to buy 10 acres of tobacco. You know, I, I'll use something else to control my weeds. It's definitely... Uh, been a driving factor for the relative success that we've had. So the new the new regulations or new registrations rather for the Dicamba products instituted cutoff dates for applications. And as the correct if I'm wrong, but the registrations cotton was July thirtieth and soybeans were June thirtieth, which obviously we've got a lot of soybeans that still haven't gone on the ground yet. And behind wheat, June 30th is a very short deadline. So can you talk a little bit about kind of what y'all did to try to help growers in North Carolina be able to use uh, dicamba products a little bit further into the season? Yeah, so that's a good question. So each year that the these products have been labeled, we have had a 24C special local needs label here in the state. Uh, in the past, that special local needs label was to uh, bring the, the wind speed down uh, on the 24D products and then also required the training that was delivered by the NC State Weed Specialist in cooperation with NCDA. So we were used to that process. We, we do it with a lot of other pesticides as well. And so when the federal labels came out and Wes and I talked and we talked to NCDA and we we realized that our soybean guys were going to be cramped to get all their soybeans, you know, sprayed by that June 30 cutoff date with a significant portion of our acres being double crop. We put our heads together and said, look, you know, we've been able to use this product all season long for the last three years and we've had relatively good success with it. Uh, So, you know, kind of a happy medium. well, Well, let's back application cutoff date for both crops to July 31st. All cotton should be sprayed well before Ju- July 30. So cotton was kind of okay uh, as far in, in, in that regards, but the soybean guys really needed some relief. And we went through that process with NCDA uh, with each of the companies and submitted those to EPA. Uh, we actually trained folks in the training for 2021 as if those 24 C's would be accepted. It's very uncommon for them not to be accepted. Uh, so we felt confident that that, that was going to happen. Uh, however, we got the news late in the winter, early in the spring that those 24 C labels were not going to be accepted. So that, that reverted us back to the June 30 cutoff 
national cutoff date for soybean and July 30 for cotton. I don't want to speak for Wes, but, you know, I was disappointed with that decision, uh, disappointed for our growers. Anytime that we put in the, the effort into getting a 24C label, we feel there's value there. And so, uh, you know, we were disappointed that, that we didn't get that for the guys here in North Carolina. Yeah, I'd, I'd add to that. Um, disappointed would be probably a mild term for me. <laughs> I won't get into that today, but, we, you know, we had been on the forefront of a lot of this stuff from the, the get-go with, you know, 24 Cs, like Charlie talked about, what we were doing for training. And our requirements statewide were, you know, more um, restrictive or let's just say included more training, more things than – that federal label did in those first few years. In fact, they revised that federal label after the first two years and kind of modeled what some of the states were doing in the Southeast. There are a number of states doing trainings, requiring them, and they instituted that into the federal label. Other states and other parts of the country had started doing more restrictive 24 Cs to tighten up that application window. And EPA, when they were looking at it, they said, hey, you know, 24C really shouldn't be used as more restrictive, should be used to open up. And so in discussions with them in 2020 on how, about the new process, it was run by the state agencies who talked with us about it and said, look, they're talking about putting more restrictive language in the federal label, but they're very open to doing 24Cs to make it less restrictive on a special local need. And we were completely comfortable with that because like Charlie said, we've been doing surveys. We've been looking at the data. We've been looking at what's going on in North Carolina and our growers have been doing an exceptional job. I will, I'll never back down from that. Our farmers have done everything they've needed to do to preserve this technology, use it correctly and, and, and stay straight on it. And I personally took it as a slap in the face of us as well as our growers when that 24C was rejected because we showed that our numbers were lower. We showed where we didn't see increased incidents. We had a lot of local data that supported our case for that 24C label. And when that was denied, we did appeal it. We put in an appeal, which was also denied, unfortunately. So we really did try to put in uh, you know, every effort. And Charlie and I have some things in the works to hopefully strengthen our case on a, on a 24C request coming up in the future. I know there's a lot of other things on the horizon, but we feel like this is something that, that is needed because like Charlie said, we're coming up on a wall. I mean, there's thankfully, I think it, I saw a stat just uh, in the last day or two from the soybean producers that 70 some percent of our soybeans are in the ground about 50, uh, high 50%, I think maybe it was 58% have emerged, which is great. But that still means we have nearly 30% that haven't even been put in the ground. So let's say they get put in the ground today and pop up Monday. Generally, we're making these post sprays three to four weeks out and we're, we're tying our growers' hands. We, we, we're taking options off the table for them. And, and it's very frustrating especially considering we've been using it correctly i'll step off the soapbox for a minute so the the dates that we are 
legally required to go by are cutoff dates for soybeans for Genia, Extendamax, and Tavium are June 30th for soybeans and July 30th for cotton. So that's just one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast was to make sure there was some clarification on those dates because we were under the impression that the dates will be extended. That did not happen. So those are the the current cutoff dates for soybeans June 30th for these dicamba products. So we've still got a bunch of wheat that needs to be harvested. It's wet. So that's going to delay planting of soybeans. So what are some options or some strategies if we need to control some of these broadleaf weeds after June 30th on our soybeans? Yeah, hopefully folks that have these double crop situations or I still know some people that haven't planted the first planting on full season beans because of the weather, either too dry, too wet. It's been such a, a variable year this year again. Hopefully those folks, you know, were paying attention, saw that this was coming, were able to switch out some beans or maybe able to get the extend flex if they wanted to stay in the uh, dicamba bean system but hopefully be able to switch up the beans so that we can utilize alternative post herbicides regardless of what beans you're going to plant we need to be looking at residuals up front just to really uh, get us off with a clean start and get ahead of the game and make sure we're taking pressure off of these post herbicides but in these double crop beans especially where we're going to be planting late this month and and not making a post spray until july we need to be looking at either straight liberty link or liberty link stacks the enlist beans are a good option we got good weed control with them you can use liberty and 24d we do not have the restrictions on calendar date when we're spraying the enlist products on enlist beans so you don't have to abide by i know we lump the auctions often but this is a place we can definitely separate them. You can spray enlist beans after June 30th. And then if you have extend flex, that has the Liberty trait stacked in. So that would be an option as well. Hopefully we have that to work with. If you're in a situation where you just have straight Roundup Ready extend, it does not have the Liberty trait in there. You're gonna have to treat them like Roundup Ready beans. So need that solid pre up front and Probably a product like Prefix or Warrant Ultra as an early post coming in there, getting control of those pigweed or ragweed, whatever you're going after early before they get much size. Hopefully you don't have that PPO resistance we've been seeing in some parts of the state, but definitely get those cleaned up and lay a little bit more residual. Try to get us towards canopy. Otherwise, it's, it's going to be another PPO inhibitor going on top. So in cotton, we have a lot more flexibility with the July 30 cutoff. Um, cotton, the weed control should well be done by July 30. Even though a, a good portion of our crop was planted late and is off to a slow start, we still should have our weed management done well before the, the July 30 cutoff. Um, however, if, if folks find themselves in a situation where they're still needing to do weed control in that uh, extend flex cotton, you know, Liberty would be the first option. Also, if you can plan ahead and get some residuals down, like dual warrant, outlook, those would be options, good options to get ahead of the pigweed from a residual standpoint, kind of overlap those throughout the season. So 
you may not need that late season application. But really, it's it's a lot simpler in cotton because we got a lot more flexibility for guys uh, that that may need it. Liberty is going to be the the only option if you're you're getting that late and you absolutely need something. And like Wes said, on the enlist side, there is you're not going to have that cutoff date, so there's added flexibility there on the phytogen acres that that are in the 24D system. All right, is there anything else that you think the listeners need to know about auxins or the dicamba situation coming up that we haven't already covered? The only thing I would add is don't get sucked into being sloppy or frustrated or you might even call it petty on this ruling, the labels, the law. Whether we like it or not, we need to stick with it. So June 30th, if you're spraying soybeans, please do not be spraying dicambo over the top after that date. I, I know it's going to be tempting. I know you're frustrated. There's times that you're going to feel like you need to just get out there and kill those weeds. But please just stick by what the label says. We've been doing a great job with it. Please continue to hold that line and let Charlie and I work with NCDA and try to get this set right going forward. I agree, Wes. We need to absolutely need to be abiding by the labels with the looking toward the future, because just because our 24C didn't make it through this year uh, doesn't mean we may actually get it approved for next year. And so, you know, this could be a a trial run um, with this new label and, and maybe next year. Uh, we're able to to back those application dates for both crops to July 31st. We're de- Wes and I are definitely going to try, and NCDA is talking with us, and I think they would agree that we've done a good job. So don't give up hope. Very good points. So if you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. If you have podcast ideas or if you would like a certain topic for us to talk about, you can email me at jacob underscore morgan at ncsu.edu. And as always, thanks for listening to Crop Sense. Because if it isn't making money, it isn't making sense.